From WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. And in our show today, we have two stories that have a lot in common. But to explain the many things they have in common right here and now would reveal so many spoilers that I'm going to say very little. Rather than do the kind of introduction I usually do right here, all I'm going to say is that each of these stories centers around some guy. And the guy in each story has the right to remain silent. And he does not exercise that right. Like they say in the movies, he could take the easy way or he could take the hard way. And each of these guys goes way out of his way to take the hard way, not totally realizing what he's getting into. And let's just get right to it. Act one, first rule of the Apple store, don't talk about the Apple store. At some point or another, you've probably known somebody like this, somebody who can't resist the urge to talk back, not out of principle, but out of sheer chemical instinct. It's built into his personality. That's the guy in this first story. Ben Calhoun's a reporter. The guy in this story, and he'd tell you this himself, he's a sarcastic jerk. He's honest that way. He'll say he has no filter, he has foot and mouth disease, he's a loud mouth, a big mouth. Like, this is how he described getting kicked out of Catholic high school during his sophomore year. I cursed at a nun. My English teacher was a nun, and uh, one day she's screaming at me, like, we all know you're just some little thug hoodlum. And I was like, we all know you're a f***ing bitch. And uh, they were like, uh, you can't go to school here anymore. And I thought that was kind of ironic because they preach forgiveness. So, like, what are some other instances where being, like... Being me got me in trouble? Yeah, yeah. well, just, like, tons. mouthing off got you in, in trouble. Every day. I got tons from, like, the Army. I got tons from high schools. I got tons from... My current school, I got relationships, my parents. I don't know, like I'm mouthy. The mouthy guy is a guy named Joe Lapari. And I should probably say this part of Joe's personality, it doesn't always play badly for Joe. Like when he was in the army, Joe talked back to a drill sergeant who was telling him to cut off his sideburns. Joe recited the military regulations on sideburn length from memory which made the sergeant mad, but won over his battalion commander, who became a friend and mentor for Joe. Joe also does stand-up comedy, where mouthiness is encouraged. But those things, the good things, that's not why we're here. This thing that happened to Joe, it started in September of 2009, when Joe needed a new cell phone. I switched to the iPhone with all my friends. We thought we were cool, and mine just never worked. It would freeze, it would shut off, it would... I would charge it, and then I would take it off the charger, and immediately the battery would be, like, empty of power, and it would just do all the things a computer should not do. So Joe made an appointment and went to the Apple store. The staff did something they said should fix the problem, and if it didn't, they said, look, just bring it back, and we'll give you a totally new phone. The next day, the phone crashed on him. Again. So right after work, I just go to the Apple store. Get down there, and that place is a zoo. It's a a really pretty zoo. And so you get in there and, you know, walk up to the, you know, concierge that they, you know, that checks you in and stuff at the Apple store and a guy in a teal shirt. And, you know, anytime I go up to any employee at a store, I I always, because I've worked in retail many times, you know, growing up and and whatever else, I'm always very nice. Like, hey, how's it going? How you doing? Having a good day, you know? And, And he's like, you know, what can I do for you? I was like, I was here yesterday. My phone's broken. They tell me to, if I come back with it broken again, they'll just switch it out and give me a new phone. The guy said, do you have an appointment? 
said, no, you know, I was here yesterday. They, they gave me the impression that just come in and it's good to go. And he said, well, you know, we're kind of busy. It's going to be probably about a two-hour wait. I was like, cool. I have a book. I'm going to go sit over here. So 30 minutes go by, 45 minutes, an hour. Finally, 90 minutes. 90 minutes. And I'm like, I, like they got to be calling me soon. And I just went up and be like, look. You know, it's been about two hours. Are we getting any closer to to me getting up there? So he looks me up. He's like, oh, it's probably going to be about a two-hour wait. I was like, I've already been here for two hours. There's no way I'm waiting for four hours. He's like, well, if you had an appointment, this wouldn't happen. That's what appointments are for. You get the appointment, and then you get seen. And I was like, slowly roll. <laughs> and I, like, shoved something off the table, and I stormed out. Jill hopped the subway home to Queens, and the whole way back, even after he got home, he couldn't stop thinking about it. How can I spend $600 for a thing that does not work? I don't make a lot of money. And uh, so, you know, I was kind of steaming, you know, smoking a little pot like you do. It's, it's medicinal, you know, I promise. And uh, I was watching Fight Club. What? Fight Club was on TV. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. And I, I was just, you know, watching you Fight Club, chilling out, theory. trying to calm myself down. Come on, hit me for a so Joe's on his couch, a big puffy boat of a couch that presumably used to be white. Joe has his laptop. He's distracting himself by looking at Facebook. And like he said, he's watching Fight Club. And uh, the scene from Fight Club comes on where, where Ed Norton's boss walks in with a piece of paper and he's like oh I found this on a copy machine first rule of Fight Club is second rule of Fight Club like do you know anything about this well I gotta tell you I'd be very very careful who you talk to about that because the person who wrote that is dangerous and this button down Oxford cloth psycho might just snap and then stalk from office to office with an Armalite AR-10 carbine gas powered semi-automatic weapon pumping round after round in the colleagues and co-workers. This might be someone you've known for years. Someone very, very close to you. I kind of took it and paraphrased it a little bit, and my status was... Joe's status on Facebook. (laughs) And I'm reading it here. Joe Lapari might walk into an Apple store on Fifth Avenue with an Armalite AR-10 gas-powered semi-automatic weapon and pump round after round into one of those smug, fruity little concierges. This may be someone you've known for years, someone very, very close to you. Just so you know, I did ask Joe about his use of the word fruity here, and he told me that no, it was not homophobic. He was just trying to describe the guy's demeanor. Uh, No, I'm the least homophobic. Like, I have a gay cousin. I'm the least homophobic person in the world. In any case, he types this thing into Facebook, and he posts it. And that's that. For like an hour... He just sits there, feet on the coffee table. And I get a, a, a like a shave and a haircut, two bits, knock on the door. And I just think, hey, one of my buddies got in, didn't have to buzz, great. Joe jumps up, goes to the front door. Uh, yeah, without even, without even looking through the peephole, I swing the door open, kind of go to lean on the, you know, the door jam, and that's when I see that there's an officer here standing right in front of the door, two behind him, and one at the top of the stairs, like, covering the high ground. (laughs) These weren't regular uniform cops. They were the guys in street clothes, the guys with black bulletproof vests. One of them had a machine gun. Oh, you know, guns drawn, badges out, you know, cliche, policeman sunglasses, you know, the whole nine yards. And, you know, the guy at the door is like, are you Joe Lepari? And I was like, uh, 
Yeah? <laughs> well, you seem pretty nervous, Joe. Well, not every day a guy with an MP5 is knocking on my door. What can I do for you? Is everything okay? And, uh... He's like, well, you seem to know a lot about guns. It's worth stopping here. There was a perfectly good explanation for why Joe could identify the officer's machine gun, something called an MP5. Remember, Joe was in the military. He was a marksman in the army. And he could have said that. He probably should have said it. But of course, he didn't. You know, me being a sarcastic jerk, I go, well, I, I watch a lot of Bond movies, <laughs> which I giggle and, and they don't. <laughs> what the officers did do then was search Joe's apartment. And they were asking him all kinds of confusing questions, like about explosives. And Joe, he was trying to figure out why they were there in the first place. During that, like, a week or two before, they had caught some terrorist or a wannabe terrorist in Queens. So maybe something in my building, something in the neighborhood. I, I, I had no idea. I'm just trying to defuse the situation, like, kind of make jokes, kind of try and show these guys, like, I'm not trouble. You know, I, I couldn't be any further from it. Also, remember, while all this is going on, Joe is high. Cops with machine guns are all over his apartment, pulling out drawers and tearing things apart. He has no idea why, and he's totally stoned. Well, the one cop points at the marijuana on the, on the coffee table, kind of snickers, and, and the other one is like, well, you a big fan of the reefer? I said, oh, you know, I kind of go through phases. <laughs> it was a stressful day. And, uh, you know, they, two of them go looking around, and the, the one kind of stays back with me, and he tries to, like, buddy-buddy with me. He's like, he goes, uh, he's like, yeah, I understand, uh, I used to be an alcoholic. <laughs> In my mind, I'm like, well, it's not really the same thing, but, but all right. And the one cop uh, comes back. He's like, do you know what an AR-10 is? And I was like, is that why you're here? Like, I was, like, almost dumbfounded. Like, how... In my mind, I'm like, how in the hell are the cops here because of Facebook? <laughs> of all the dumb things I've done in my life. It's a, it's a joke. It's a quote from a movie, guy. The movie's on in the other room. Like, I can rewind it if you like. And then, uh, you know, the, the one cop was like, well, you know, we need to take you downtown for questioning. You know, Homeland Security wants to talk to you. I was like, really? The cops escorted Joe downstairs, and he saw that they weren't alone. They'd actually brought backup. There were two extra police cars with officers waiting, like in case the guys with the bulletproof vest and the machine gun needed help. They took Joe to a station in Queens and threw him into an interrogation room. Like in Batman, where they leave the Joker, the same thing. Like, you know, all blank walls, one mirror, which is probably a two-way, and, you know, crappy table, crappy chairs, and one guy offers you coffee. And then I'm in the interrogating room for a good three, three and a half hours just... Different people questioning me, like taking turns with me. Good cop, bad cop, bad cop, bad cop, good cop, good cop. Joe was sure once he explained the situation, they'd see it was a mistake and everything would shake out. It wasn't until four months later that Joe understood he was in serious trouble. I brought a copy of the court records to our interview. Um, th those are the actual charges against you. A PL 240-60 and a PL 490-20. The one is make terroristic threats. And the second one is false report of a public building or place. Just to clarify, because it is a little bit confusing, 
Joe is charged with two felonies, including making a terrorist threat. Joe says even today, he's still not sure how something he posted on Facebook got him arrested. A popular theory with Joe's friends and family is that Facebook rummages through people's pages, flags stuff, and tips off law enforcement. Well, I called Facebook. A spokesperson said flat out, quote, Facebook did not bring this to the attention of law enforcement. Facebook's policy is that they only turn over user content when law enforcement approaches them, and even then, only in extreme situations, like when a child is abducted. Looking at the court records, the actual answer about how the police got tipped off seems to be much more mundane, and frankly, kind of unflattering for Joe. The police report originated in Hawthorne, New Jersey, one town over from where Joe grew up, which means it was probably someone Joe knew who did this, someone who just dislikes him enough to report him for no reason, or someone who actually thought he might do it. He had his first court date for all this in January, on the 15th, a Friday. When the DA gets up or the DA's assistant or assistant DA or whatever, whatever you call them, gets up and reads in front of the judge, reads the charges and then reads the quote aloud in the courtroom. <laughs> and you could just hear everyone, like feel everyone in the courtroom sink. Like, like you hear a pin drop. Like in retrospect, it, it sounds bad. And the judge even looked at me with a weird look. And, and I start giggling <laughs> when it gets to like, uh, you know, the AR-10, like I giggle. Uh, the DA, the ADA was like, uh, you know, the people understand that Mr. Lapari is a comedian and what he said is the benefit of his friends. And, and so uh, right there, I'm like, so why are we even here if you understand it? You know, why? If you understand I'm just a schmuck that doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut, why are we here? Since then, Joe's been to court more than half a dozen times over this. And from the sound of it, he hasn't been making things any easier for himself. By his own account, he's given one or two speeches about the Constitution and about how the terrorists have won. Not exactly one to dress for court, Joe recently got scolded for wearing Hawaiian shorts in the courtroom. Joe pointed to the guy next to him and said, that guy's wearing sweatpants. This brings us to what might actually be the most remarkable thing about Joe's whole story, which is this. Most of us learn at some point in our lives that we shouldn't always say whatever impulsive thing we feel like saying, And if we didn't learn that lesson by getting in trouble in school or making someone cry, the day the cops showed up at our door with machine guns, or the day we had to stand up in court and face felony terrorism charges over a broken cell phone, those things would be a red light where we would stop and reevaluate. But has Joe reevaluated? Considered whether his life would be easier if he changed? No. I don't think so. I I mean, I haven't yet. I, I haven't... No, yeah, I don't. I don't think I'm, I've ever gotten to a point where I'm like, oh man, let me change who I am. No, absolutely not. I, I don't. I can't. I don't. I don't know how. <laughs> Even if I wanted to, like, shut my mouth more often, I don't think. I, I don't think I have the facilities to do so. Why not? Uh, I don't know. I just. I can't. I don't want to. I. I don't even. I don't want to. Because some of the the people who love me, love me for that. The people who hate me, hate me for that. So why am I going to worry about the people who hate me and not the people who love me? In the last few months, the district attorney's office offered Joe a number of plea deals. 
Some of them were pretty good. Most recently, a misdemeanor with some community service. Joe rejected all of them. He wanted a jury trial. He was sure no jury would convict him. Finally, Joe went back to court again. And it seems he kind of won. He's got what's called an adjournment in contemplation of dismissal, which essentially means his case is on ice for the next six months. And then the prosecutors will drop the charges against him. There is, of course, one hitch to all that. One thing that could ruin this and put Joe right back on the hook. During the next six months, Joe's got to stay out of trouble. Ben Calhoun is one of the producers of our show. Coming up, another guy who's got no problem standing up to the police. Though, in his case, it's because he is the police. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's This American Life, Myra Glass. Our show today, Right to Remain Silent. We have two stories of people who very much do not choose to remain silent. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show. Act 2 is that tape recorder in your pocket, or are you just unhappy to see me? Adrian Schoolcraft is a New York City policeman who decided to secretly record himself and his fellow officers on the job, all day, every workday, he says, for 17 months, including lots of days when he was ordered to do all kinds of things cops are not supposed to do. It's led to a small scandal, several people removed from their jobs, and four investigations of the New York Police Department. Though Adrian insists he didn't get into this looking for trouble. He, uh, his father was a police officer, and I would say he went along with the program for a few years. This is a reporter who broke the story in the Village Voice about Adrian and what he recorded those 17 months, a reporter named Graham Raymond. When I asked Graham what Adrian, the person at the center of this scandal, is like, the first thing out of his mouth is... Uh, I would describe him as an extremely earnest person, almost in this cynical age, almost to the point of almost too earnest. Like, he, he actually believed that he could get the police commission to change certain things about how the police department is being run. Adrian Schoolcraft was working in Brooklyn, Precinct 81, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, a rough neighborhood, mostly black, that was slowly gentrifying. The precinct is just seven blocks wide and 20 blocks long, roughly, and had 13 murders last year, which is a third of what it used to be. Adrian's kind of an electronics buff, and he bought himself one of those tiny digital recorders, tucked it in his breast pocket, and started recording as he walked his beat when he talked to other cops. All right, thanks for roll call. Morning roll calls. The only reason the thought entered my head was because uh, to protect myself. This is Adrian. Like any other officer who would uh, carry a recorder was to protect themselves from any false accusations, usually from civilians uh, yeah. who are upset. How big was the recorder? Oh, about the size of a pack of gum. The atmosphere at the 81st Precinct was set by its commander, Stephen Mariello. When Mariello showed up, Adrian Schoolcraft says, things changed. Officers were told to write more tickets, do more stop and frisk, arrest more people for low-level offenses they might otherwise let go, get their numbers up. The pressure definitely increased when he arrived and took over as the commanding officer. The analogy I would use is like having a boot to the back of your heel. It is do this or else. The rent's due. The rent's due. The rent is due. Pay the rent. Did you pay the rent last month? Pay the rent means like, did you get your numbers? Correct. Now, it's perfectly legal for police to be told, like anybody in any job, here's the amount of work that we expect you to do, the number of tickets and arrests that are normal for somebody in your job in this neighborhood. 
But what's not allowed is to penalize police officers who do not make those targets. We don't want police officers under such pressure to deliver numbers that they make stops and arrests and write summonses with no valid reason just to get their goals. Again, reporter Graham Raymond. In other words, as a police supervisor, I can't tell you, you better give me 20 tickets a month or else I'm going to transfer you to the graveyard shift. There can't be a direct relationship between the two. That's just against the rules. That's, it's against the law. It's against the law? Yeah, it's just a state law against, against that kind of thing. But what was happening in the precinct and what the tapes show repeatedly is that they were tying it to disciplinary action. They were threatening the cops. If you don't hit your numbers, you'll get transferred. You'll lose your assignment. We'll change your partner. You'll go on a foot post. You'll be given a, a worse assignment. On November 1st, 2008, one sergeant declares at a roll call, quote, they are looking at these numbers and people are going to be moved. They can make your job real uncomfortable. And we all know what that means. On December 8, 2008, a sergeant tells the officers that if they don't get their activity up, quote, there's some people here that may not be here come next month. Because officially, the NYPD doesn't allow numeric quotas to be tied to job performance. You hear the supervisors in the recordings sometimes get into real verbal contortions to get the point across, like in this excerpt from a roll call the first month that Schoolcraft was recording, June 2008. The EXO was in the other day. I don't know who was here. He actually laid down a number. I'm just going to repeat this because it's hard to hear. The EXO was in the other day. That's a commanding officer, right? Yeah. Or the yeah. executive, executive officer. officer. Was in the other day. He laid down a number. All right. So I'm not going to quote him on that because I don't want to be quoted stating numbers. I'm not going to quote him on that because I don't want to be quoted stating numbers. All right. He wants at least three seatbelts, one cell phone, and 11 others. He wants three seatbelts, one cell phone, and 11 others. What does that mean? He wants three seatbelt summonses, for, uh, tickets for people not wearing their seatbelt, uh, one cell phone, someone uh, driving in their car talking on the cell phone, and 11 others. There are dozens of other categories of summonses that you can give people. I don't know what the number is, but that's what he wants. I don't know what the number is, but that's what he wants. That's a really – what does that mean? He's he, he's playing the same game. He He – he knows he's not supposed to state a number, but he wants to get his point across. So he's kind of – it's kind of like a, uh, if you remember All the President's Men. It's a non-denial denial. Adrian Schoolcraft says he isn't exactly sure when, but at some point he decided that it was important to document the orders that he was given, that he thought were out of line. He recorded roll calls where officers were constantly being told to do more stop and frisks, even though it's illegal to stop a random person on the street and frisk them without reasonable suspicion. In December 2008, a sergeant tells officers to stop and frisk, quote, anybody walking around, no matter what the explanation is. He recorded Stephen Mariello, the commander of the 81st Precinct, and the person Adrian Schoolcraft says really brought the hammer down for higher numbers, ordering the officers to arrest everyone they see. This happens in a couple of recordings, like this one, from Halloween 2008. Any roving bands, you hear me? He's saying any roving bands of more than two or three people. He's talking about just people going around on Halloween night. I want them stopped. I want them stopped. Cuffed. Cuffed. Put in here, run some warrants. Throw them in here, run some warrants. You're on a foot post, f Take the first guy you got and lock them all up. Boom. You're on a foot post, F it. Take the first guy you've got, lock them all up. Boom. You're going to go back out and process them later on. I have no problem with them all the time. Go back out and then we'll come back in and process them later on. Yes. Yeah, what he's saying is arrest people simply for the purpose of clearing the streets. Again, Graham Raymond, he says the problem with that is there has to be a violation of the law to make an arrest. He's essentially making the arrest before the crime takes place. 
this is an example of something that I would say they're going out in the street and just grabbing people that's unlawful imprisonment. It's an, it's an illegal arrest. That's John Eterno, a former New York City cop who went up the ranks from officer to sergeant to lieutenant and captain. He now chairs the Department of Criminal Justice at Malloy College and researches and writes about police practices with Professor Eli Silverman. And he says that some of the things that Adrian Schoolcraft documented on his recordings were no surprise to anybody, like sergeants hounding officers to get their numbers up. That's been happening in every precinct for a long time, he says. But for commanders to tell cops to just lock people up and figure it out later, Turner says the word for that is kidnapping. That's, that's exactly what it is. They're just pulling people off the street. It's an unlawful imprisonment. They're being kidnapped. If they don't have probable cause, you cannot grab people off the street. It is kidnapping. At this point, from what I'm hearing on this tape, it seems to me that this is probably illegal behavior that's taking place on the part of the police department. We were arrested. They take us to the 81st precinct, put us in lockup for maybe uh, an hour or two. And, you know, they processed us and checked for warrants. And once they seen no warrants, you know, they let us go. But we were still issued a citation. Andre Wade has lived in the neighborhood uh, for over 20 years. He's a commercial driver. uh, One day, he and two friends were picking up his brother to go to work together. They were standing on the sidewalk. And a police officer came over, said they were trespassing. When his brother came down and confirmed, no, no, they were there to pick him up, Andre says the officer wouldn't listen. He was just saying stuff like, you know you're not supposed to be standing here. He he started getting upset when we were, you know, like trying to uh, talk him out of giving us the citations, you know. And it's like he just got out of control. He got real erratic and, you know, got on the radio. And next thing you know, when we turn around, it's like eight, nine police cars. You know, it was to the point to where you would think that somebody was getting arrested for murder or something like that, you know. And they was just, you know, like jumping out of their vehicles and... You know, and me and my buddies already knew that, you know, that we were in for a ride. The citation that the police gave Wade was his name, the day that he's supposed to appear in court, but in the spot where it's supposed to specify his crime. Yes, in that field of the ticket, there was nothing. No violation. The violation was was blank. One of the producers of our radio show lives in the 81st Precinct. And she says that it's one of those neighborhoods where everybody has stories of ridiculous tickets. One of her neighbors was bringing his aunt home from the hospital and double parked. Two officers told him to move his car, and when he didn't, he was handcuffed, forced to lie down in the street, and tasered twice, all in front of a crowd of people, including her, who live on the block and heard him calling for help. One common citation is for having an open container of alcohol. One neighbor says he was walking home from church with his six-year-old daughter, drinking a small carton of Tropicana orange juice, and he got a ticket for that. Others got tickets for water or Gatorade that was being given away at the park. George Walker has lived on the same block for over 40 years and says older guys like him get a lot of tickets. He thinks maybe they're targeted because they don't give the cops any fuss. He says he's gotten a dozen tickets this past year, nearly all for open container, even though he says he wasn't drinking alcohol. Every last ticket was dismissed. Everyone was not, was not a valid ticket. Because you have to name, if you see someone drinking alcohol and you give them a ticket for open container, you have to name what they were drinking. But if they can't name it, they just said, they say cup with alcohol in it. But that's not the name of the alcohol, so it gets dismissed because it wasn't alcohol in the first place. But, I don't know, they, they feel like they could do anything they want to us. So in this police station where everybody's obsessed with how many tickets they're writing, where cops are told to pull people off corners and throw them in jail and figure out later what to charge them with, comes Adrian Schoolcraft, 
who had no interest in making his numbers. No, I never tried to uh, make anything happen. It was, I went out there and uh, you walk your beat. Whatever happened, happened. When you would talk to other officers in the precinct, did you have friends who felt the same way? Yes. And would they not get the numbers or would they get the numbers? They would get the numbers. It's easier, especially if you have a wife, kids, and then they're devoted to their pension and retiring. Do you not have a wife and kids? No. And so you wouldn't go up to people just to give them a ticket? No. Because? Uh, it just wasn't right. I found I was getting along with uh, a lot of the business owners, the local business owners, and I started interacting with the residents, and they would tell me who the, the problems were. Now, if you start messing with the residents and you start going into the barber shops and writing summons that I don't feel police officers have any business writing, uh, um, they didn't sweep the floor of hair. And these are the same people that could help you perform your job as a patrolman or a police officer. That that was my philosophy, and it did work. And so did you get a lot of heat for doing this? Uh, heat was pressure from supervisors. What would they do? Well, I think they consider the foot post punishment, but I always enjoyed the, the foot post. Uh, but there's also uh, hospitalized prisoners, uh, prisoner transports. So they would assign you to these lousy posts? You know, to get to get my mind right, they would try those, but I accepted those as normal duties as a police officer. But we still haven't gotten to the most disturbing thing documented by Adrian Schoolcraft in his recordings. Schoolcraft shows, over and over, that sometimes, when real crimes would happen, serious crimes, the 81st Precinct would reclassify them as lesser crimes, or simply not put them in the system at all, to make it look like the Precinct was doing a better job driving down crime rates than it really was. Again, reporter Graham Raymond. I mean, there's a remarkable conversation that Schoolcraft has with another officer. And the other officer is just telling him three anecdotes of how the precinct commander and supervisor basically dumped three criminal complaints that should have been recorded. Yeah, what, what, what are the stories that he tells? One, one is this, a young woman reports her cell phone was robbed, and the precinct commander basically says, What do you want me to do? What do you want to do with this? What do you want us to do with this? How are we going to solve this? Are you going to get your phone back? You're not going to get your phone back. And he's like, well, what if we can't get it back? He's like, are you going to press charges? He basically talks her out of filing a complaint, and that should be a robbery that should go in their, in their numbers. And one of the other ones is the precinct commander responds to a report of a stolen stolen vehicle. And he says, he, the first, his first question is, he asks the victim, is, have you done jail time? He's like, uh, you ever been arrested before? He's like, yeah. He's like, oh, what for? Which is not really a proper question to ask of a crime victim. But he asks it, and uh, the guy says, yes, yeah, I did I did eight years in prison when I was younger. And, uh, and the prison commander says, maybe karma stole your car. So you think maybe karma woke up this morning and took your car? Karma is in, like, the spiritual... Yeah. <laughs> He was like, no, I don't think karma takes cars. So he's he, like, I think somebody took so he my didn't car. Take, he didn't take his report because he's a felon? Yeah, basically. In the end, this cop tells Adrian, oh, their supervisor, Stephen Mariello, told him to file the case as an unauthorized driver. Meaning that the guy loaned his car to somebody else who, who now has it. That when the officer tried to file it that way, 
because he didn't have a name for the unauthorized driver. He couldn't file it at all. So the robbery went unreported. Rules go into effect in the 81st Precinct that make it harder to report serious crimes. Officers are told that if there's a robbery, one of their supervisors has to come out to the scene themselves. And robbery victims are told that if they don't come into the police station, no crime report will be filed at all. After Graham Raymond started publishing these stories about Adrian Schoolcraft, retired cops and some on-duty cops started contacting him with their own anecdotes about crimes being downgraded from serious to much less serious. The most shocking of these from a high-ranking detective named Harold Hernandez. He's a very distinguished detective. Um, he was working in the 33rd Precinct in Washington Heights. And one morning, he comes into work, and there's a guy who's accused of first-degree rape uh, sitting in his interview room. So he sits down, and he looks at the guy, and he says, and he, he has a little twinge, and he says, have you ever done this before? And the guy said, yeah. And, and Hernandez says, how many times? And he says, oh, I don't know, seven or eight. And Hernandez says, where? He goes, in this neighborhood. And Hernandez is now dumbstruck because he has had no, there's been no report of a serial rapist, sexual predator, working in the neighborhood. Like, like no crimes have shown up. People haven't no. shown up saying they've been raped or assaulted. He, he hasn't been notified. And he would be notified as a, as a senior detective in the unit. It would be a very big deal. And um, so he says, uh, can you give me the dates and locations? And the guy says, well, I can try, but, but I, you're going to have to take me around and I'll show you. I'll show you. So he and a, a fellow detective get in the car and they drive around and they look. And, and uh, the suspect, whose name is Daryl Thomas, points out the locations. And then Hernandez takes his notebook and he writes down the locations. And then he goes back and he looks through stacks of crime complaints and he finds them and he realizes that they've been classified they've been downgraded they've been classified either as criminal trespassing or criminal possession of a weapon both relatively minor crimes given that the actual conduct in the narrative that the victims are describing is either first degree burglary robbery or sexual abuse sexual assault and he he confronts his bosses about it he confronts the precinct commander and he confronts his uh, detective squad commander, and everyone just shrugs. Meanwhile, everyone's terrified that it's going to come out. These women are going to go to the press, and it's going to be a huge embarrassment, a huge scandal for the department. And if it had come out, it would have been a huge scandal for the department. Um, but the department was able to keep it quiet. The district attorney's office prosecuted Thomas, and he went away for 50 years. But here's the interesting part. They never publicized the case. There's never a press release issued about it. There was never a news article written about the case. Normally, Graham says, a case like this, serial rapist, they try to get some press. But the misclassifications of the crimes would have made the MIPD look bad. No one was ever disciplined for, for, for what happened, for downgrading. The precinct commander uh, was promoted twice by Commissioner Kelly. The guy who was in charge of that precinct where all this stuff happened? Where this stuff happened. He's been promoted twice. You know, it just went on business as usual. Uh, Hernandez, here's a guy who probably would have stayed in the department for 35 years, 30, 35 years, as long as he could. But he was so upset about this incident and about other instances of downgrading and of manipulation of the crime stats that he uh, he retired. And so, and so the NYPD has denied that crimes are downgraded like this. 
Yeah. Well, they've said that it only happens in a very tiny percentage of, of, of cases, and they say that the crime stats are audited very carefully. And uh, if it was a wider problem, it would be uh, spotted. The New York Police Department declined our request to come onto the radio or to have the officers who supervised Adrian Schoolcraft and who were heard on his recordings to be interviewed about their side of all this. But the pressure on police commanders to get better numbers really goes back to 1994, when New York started tracking crimes with a system called CompStat. CompStat, for the first time, gave commanders timely, accurate data once a week on where crimes are happening so they could send more cops to deal with it. Chances are you've heard of all this. It became one of the best-known successes in modern policing. Serious crime has dropped an astonishing 77% in New York City since CompStat began in 1994. Other cities very quickly started imitating it, D.C., Philly, L.A. Baltimore's version of CompStat ended up in a recurring plotline on the TV show The Wire, where street cops were told by their bosses to do anything to pump up their numbers. And the problem with CompStat, says Professor Eli Silverman, who studies the way police forces use numbers, is that the early success of CompStat created the expectation that numbers must get better every single year, no matter what. In the beginning, it was like an orange. You can squeeze juice from an orange in the beginning much more readily than you can as you, as you extract juice from that orange. And now it gets harder and harder to drive crime down because you're compared to not how you were in 94, but how you were last year the same week. And when something's pushed to the excess that it is now and numbers dominate the system, that's when you have negative consequences. As apparently the one person in the 81st Precinct who was not obsessed by the numbers, Adrian Schoolcraft, by January 2009, had so displeased his bosses that they gave him a failing job evaluation that covered the entire year 2008, which meant one thing, Schoolcraft says. They're they're starting the paper trail, and they'll just keep documenting. They're starting to move you out. He hired a lawyer and appealed the evaluation, but started feeling more pressure than ever to go out and do what his bosses wanted. He began to get stomach pains and tightness in his chest. He had trouble sleeping. Again, reporter Graham Raymond. I think within the precinct, he was probably seen as a little bit eccentric. And and also, he wasn't going with the program. Yeah. You know? And anyone who doesn't go with the program is automatically marked. Schoolcraft began to feel that he was being retaliated against. He got written up for taking a bathroom break without putting it in his log. Another officer was written up for talking to him. When he went to the duty captain, he was told, yes, he's being monitored. Because of your past activity. When people at the same level as you and the same post as you are doing a lot more than what you do when you're out there, we don't know if you're even out there. That's the problem. If there's a bunch of kids on a stoop and you're walking past, the duty captain asks them, and then names some addresses where that might happen, you just go on your merry way because you don't see anything going on? Schoolcraft tells him he wouldn't just create fake charges. That's a common practice here, he says. The captain asks him what he means and says in 19 years he's never seen anybody create charges. Then he asks Schoolcraft the question again. Those kids on the step, you going to keep walking? No. You going to ask them if they live there? I usually won't get a response, but... Right. you, Schoolcraft... Right? <laughs> That's how it usually happens. Yeah. Are you going to create something there? Because I could tell you that if that motherfucker told me to myself, yeah. Is he going in handcuffs for telling me that? Yeah. That's it. 
if you let that go because there's no violation, because he didn't break a law, then I feel bad for you. You know, because then you have a tough job. And then maybe you should find something else to do. You know? So if you call that creating something, you call that creating something, <coughs> or you call that a matter of keeping the respect because they'll step all over you when they see you out there. They'll do whatever they want in front of you when you're out there. Schoolcraft says that around this time, the recordings became about trying to keep his job. Somebody tells him that one of his bosses wants to force him out on psychiatric grounds. During this whole time that you were recording, who did you tell? My father knew. Friends? But no. Fellow officers? No. Were you tempted to tell anybody ever? No. What did your dad say? He would ask me if I heard anything that day. And when you were getting these orders to get your numbers up and you wouldn't do it, what did your dad say about that? Uh, he would just reiterate to me how the quota system, it, it, wherever you are, whatever city you're in, it, it isn't, it's unethical and it's, it's illegal. So he was on your side? Yes. Finally in April, Schoolcraft takes off a week for stomach and chest pains and is sent to a police department doctor. The doctor finds nothing wrong with him physically. And he, he asked me if, if I was experiencing stress or anything. I said, well, yes, this matter of fact, this is what's going on. He, and he said, are you sure you want to tell me this? Schoolcraft says he laid it all out for the doctor. His bad performance evaluation, the numbers he was asked to hit, and also more personal disputes with his bosses about whether his evaluation was falsified, was the precinct doing training it claimed it was doing. And the police department doctor referred Schoolcraft to see a police department psychologist for an evaluation. And when Schoolcraft tells the psychologist the same things that he told the doctor, she asked him to turn in his gun and shield. Well, she made it sound like it was, uh, it was normal. She said it's, it's not unusual for us to uh, take an officer's gun and shield if he or she is having chest pains. Schoolcraft moves to a job answering phones at the precinct, where he continues to gather evidence. And in October, he finally talks to the people in the police department who investigate unethical practices, the Internal Affairs Bureau, IAB. It doesn't go well. Schoolcraft says that not only did they seem very skeptical, he claims that Internal Affairs left phone messages for him at the precinct. He says this alerted his bosses to the fact that he was talking to Internal Affairs. Internal Affairs does start an investigation, though. And soon Schoolcraft gets a phone call from the division of the police department, whose main purpose is to make sure that crime reporting and statistics using Comstat are accurate. It's called the Quality Assurance Division. And at last, Schoolcraft says, somebody seems to take his accusations seriously. Investigators hear him out, ask lots of questions, and promise to look into it. He doesn't tell them that he has recordings. In fact, as you can hear, he secretly records his three-hour meeting with them. But he does give them documentation, real evidence to back up his charges. And what happens next to Adrian Schoolcraft is very, very strange. Just a few weeks after his meetings with Internal Affairs and QAD, he shows up to work. It's the end of October. As soon as I sit down, a, a, a lieutenant approaches me and asks for my activity log. Well, this activity log is where I keep a lot of my notes regarding what people are saying and uh, the times they're saying it. And all the things, basically, you're, you're trying to report that Correct. you think are going wrong in the precinct. Correct. And it wasn't until I got it back that I realized the cat was out of the bag. He had bent the corners on some of the pages, and I, I saw what piqued his interest. And I became very worried. 
um, how he was looming around me, and I felt threatened by it. And again, the, all these all these officers are armed, but because, but I left because, with permission because you thought what was going to happen. Well, I wasn't sure. I was just I just felt his, his behavior worried me. Yeah, you know, and uh, but you thought like he might provoke you into something, and then he would he would shoot you or something. That was one of the uh, that was one of the fears. I'm not just an officer inside. Now I'm an officer that has this psych issue. No one's supposed to know, but everyone knows. But when you have your gun and shield taken, you've been psyched, and you have that brand on you. So what's going to happen? I think I say I lunged at him, or they any kind of scenario could play out, and I just didn't feel comfortable, so I left. How he left is in dispute. Schoolcraft says that he told a sergeant that he was feeling sick and went home an hour early. The police say the sergeant never said yes to this request. In any case, Schoolcraft went home and went to bed. A few hours later, I received a phone call from my father, and he told me he received a phone call from my XO. He says, look outside your window. And I looked out my window, and there were multiple police vehicles, and there seemed to be quite a crowd. Adrian has no idea what they want. But he knows the situation is bad, so he starts recording. 31 October 2009. The officers open Adrian's door, the key they get from his landlord. Adrian! Police department, buddy! Let me see your hands. Uh, they've just entered my home, and they were in their helmets and gear and tasers. They had the special weapons, basically SWAT. You all right? Yeah, I think so. All right. Everybody's worried about you. They haven't heard from you. Who's worried about me? Adrian, Your you boss. was knocking on his door for a couple hours? No. Why would I expect anyone to knock on my door, Chief? I don't know, Adrian, but if you hear somebody knocking, normally you get up and answer it. They were kicking on that door loud and yelling. I wasn't feeling well. All right, sit down. Sit down. That voice you just heard in Adrian's bedroom is a man of much higher rank than anybody in any of the recordings to this point. He's the number two commander for the NYPD for all of Brooklyn North. Michael Marino. Stephen Mariello, the head of the 81st Precinct, the commander that Adrian contends had been putting pressure on all the officers to deliver better numbers, is also there in the bedroom. He talks next. You got everybody worried. You worried about your safety, all right? Worried about what? We worry about what? They try calling you. Everybody's been calling you. You just walk out of precinct. You know? That's what we're worried about. Your safety, your well-being. All right, I'm fine. Why does he keep saying that? He's worried about your safety. That's his excuse to come into my home. Get your stuff on. I'm going back to the precinct. I'm not going back to the precinct. Adrian, we've got to go back to the precinct. For? Because we're going to do it the right way. You can't just walk out of command. What's going to be done if I go to the 8-1? What's going to be done? We're going to go investigate why you left. I tell you why I left. I was feeling sick. Adrian, that's not the reason why you leave. All right? You know that. Adrian knows the rules, and he asks if he's under arrest. He's not under arrest. But the number two commander for Brooklyn North, Michael Marino, tells him he's giving him an order. Listen to me. I'm a chief in the New York City Police Department. You're a police officer. So this is what's going to happen, my friend. You've disobeyed an order. And the way you're acting is, is not right at, at the very least. Chief, if, Stop if you right were walking there. up Stop. your house, Stop right there, son. Son, I'm doing the talking right now. Not in you. my apartment. In your apartment. You are is going, this Russia? You are going to be suspended. All right? That's what's going to happen. You're suspended, son. That's when I found out what they, that's what they were so desperate to accomplish. How many people are in your bedroom at this point? In the bedroom, there's, at all times, there's at least four. And then there's a, there's a living room, at least a dozen. 
If this seems like an extreme response to you, reporter Graham Raymond confirms it is. Yeah, it's very extreme for going home from work early, an hour early. An officer asks Adrian if he wants medical aid, an EMT, to come check him out. Adrian's blood pressure turns out to be sky high. They offer to take him to a hospital, but not his local hospital, to one that he's never heard of. And he doesn't get what they're up to, and he refuses medical attention. Under the law, they should leave him alone. But for some reason, they will not take no for an answer. Adrian, lie down in the bus, and we'll go. I can lie down in my own bed. I haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, you have. Okay, file it. Write it up. Now it's a matter of your health. Adrian, listen to me. All right, son? Again, this is Deputy Chief Marino of Brooklyn North. Right now, EMS is saying that you're acting irrational. This is them, not us. And then if you don't go to the hospital, listen yeah, to me. Yeah, they're whispering in their ear. Adrian, they are not Chief, with do what Adrian, you Adrian, listen do. to me. Now, you have a choice. You get up like a man and put your shoes on and walk like into that bus like a man. Or, son, they're going to treat you as an EDP, and that means handcuffs. And I do not want to see that happen to a cop. EDP is emotionally disturbed person. Son, you've caused this. I didn't cause anything. You have caused this. Now, you have a choice. They're saying you have to go to the hospital. That's EMS. Those are trained medical professionals. And if you don't go, then you're not acting rashly. And they say now they're afraid you're emotionally disturbed. It was all very surreal. It was uh, at that point right there, he's very agitated. His face is red, and I, I knew then that anything could happen. I had no witnesses. No one was living with me. So you have a choice. What is it going to be? I'm laying right here until I feel better. Okay, son. He's EDP. He's EDP. Why am I putting my hands behind my back? Because you have to go to the hospital. All right, just take him. I I can't f***ing stand anymore. Do me a favor. Put your hands behind your back. Put your hands behind your back. Get one hand. Go ahead. Get one hand. They pulled me off the bed. They slammed me to the floor. The way they were stomping on my back, they were, they were pressing on my chest in a way that it was affecting my uh, circulation. Adrian, stop it. Adrian. My chest. Oh, my chest. During this struggle, as they cuff Adrian, a little recorder falls out of his pocket. Deputy Chief Marino spots it. Absolutely amazing, Adrian. You put your fellow police officers through this. Absolutely amazing. Oh, this? Yeah, it's a recorder. Yeah. Recording devices and everything else, so he's playing a game here. Cute. So if he found that recorder, how are we hearing this tape? No, he found the recorder that was in my pocket. There was a there was another recorder. The one that was running was just a recorder on the shelf. In plain sight? I had some books around it. Now the deputy chief Marino has labeled Schoolcraft EDP, the police take Schoolcraft and commit him to a psychiatric ward, saying he was a danger to himself. Schoolcraft, who'd spent months documenting his bosses telling cops to lock people up on contrived pretenses, now found himself locked up on contrived pretenses. They told the hospital staff that I uh, I left work early, I yelled at my supervisor, and I swore at my supervisors, cursed at them, that I ran from them and I barricaded myself in my home. But the tapes show that that isn't true. Correct, no. None of, none of that happened. Schoolcraft's father, the last person Schoolcraft talked to, is unable to find him for days. The last he heard, his son was in an apartment surrounded by police. Next, he just vanished. His father says he called Internal Affairs, the FBI, the press. Finally, he located him by calling around to hospitals all over Queens. That's the only way I got out, because he confronted the hospital uh, 
administration and said, uh, here's here's my son's health care proxy. I'm his father. Why even prison my son here? And they had no answer, and they had to release me. Why do you think they went so far with you? I, I, it seemed like an act of uh, desperation, panic. You can look at it in a couple of different ways. Again, reporter Graham Raymond. One is that they put him in the psych ward because he tried to pro- report corruption and misconduct. They were literally tried to destroy his reputation. Like he's literally crazy. That's the message. That he's – yeah, right, right. right. They were trying to portray him as crazy. Uh, you could also look at it that the chief lost his temper that night, just got an angry and gave an order that turns out to be a totally inappropriate order. Mm-hmm. You know, I could I could see that being the case also. At the time that he led the raid on Schoolcraft's apartment, Deputy Chief Michael Marino was already under a microscope. It was just a month after he'd been put on trial inside the department after a sting named him as one of 27 cops who illegally bought human growth hormone or steroids. Marino claimed that he used the human growth hormone for a medical condition. And back in 2006, an arbitrator found that Marino was in violation of New York labor laws for a very similar situation to the one the Schoolcraft was documenting. The arbitrator ruled that Marino had set up an illegal quota for police officers of four parking tickets, three moving violations, three quality of life summons, and two stop and frisk per month, and then penalized the officers when they didn't make the quota. I didn't figure I would lose my job. Adrian Schoolcraft says that in the end, none of this worked out the way he thought it would during all those months of recording. I figured it would, someone would approach the supervisor and say, listen, you got caught, knock it off, and everything's in-house still, just knock it off. You know, this is getting out of control. I never saw myself as an adversary. Because you assume that the police commissioner, the people at the very top of the, of the police force, that they would be on your side. Correct. But now do you believe that, in fact, they would be on your side? I don't believe they, w- they were or ever intended to be. That's the question, of course. And there's really no way to know how typical the 81st Precinct is. Reporter Graham Raymond has heard from retired cops who say the same things happened where they worked. And he's found a policeman who was secretly recording in the Bronx at the same time as Schoolcraft, finding the same things. The guys who study the way CompStat is used by the police, John Eterno and Eli Silverman, say manipulating stats to get better numbers seems to happen in a lot of places where CompStat is used. There's evidence of the same kind of distortion. We've done research. We have people who have written in our blog from other countries, UK, Australia as well, commanders, attesting to the same phenomenon. This is not unique to New York. Having failed to reach any results working inside the department, Schoolcraft finally went to the press. And Graham's five-part series in The Village Voice has been, Adrian says, like a meteor hitting the 81st precinct. The police commissioner transferred Commander Stephen Mariello and some of the other senior-level supervisors out of the precinct. Though we only did that after several weeks of pressure from politicians and clergy. There's now one police investigation into Schoolcraft's allegations. There's another investigation into Deputy Chief Marino's order to put Schoolcraft into a psych ward. Another into the charge that serious crimes were downgraded to lesser ones. And a fourth that is just about the misclassification of crimes in Detective Hernandez's sexual assault case. Schoolcraft's recordings will be used in two class action lawsuits, one about stop and frisks, one about quotas. Schoolcraft himself is suing the department for $50 million. Two officers have come forward to back up his charges. A website, schoolcraftjustice.com, has been set up looking for more. Schoolcraft himself is suspended without pay, living with his dad 350 miles away in upstate New York, where, he says, a dozen times city police have shown up and pounded on his door, 
yelling, NYPD, we know you're in there. Open up. Of course, he recorded it. Skokraft assumes that he'll never again work as a police officer anywhere. Is it weird not to be a policeman anymore? It feels odd. Yeah. But um, I still feel like I am a policeman. I, I, I'm going forward with this investigation. I just feel like this is, this is my case. This is the one. I'll go all the way with it. And finally, with the 81st Precinct under new supervision, the numbers on serious crime have risen by 10 to 15 percent. Either crime's going up, or that's closer to the true amount of crime that was already there, only now being recorded. Our program today was produced by me and Sarah Koenig with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Jane Feltis, Jonathan Menhivar, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon is our office manager. Music help from Jessica Hopper. Production help from Sean Wen. Special thanks today to John Neffel, who told us about the story that became Act One of our show. Martin Sprouse, Tom Tripp, Kate Porterfield, Joshua Glick, Kevin Bankston, PJ Vogt, and Aaron Scott. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who's got no problem with the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Seriously. Uh, no, I'm the least hom- I, like I have a gay cousin. I, I'm the least homophobic person in the world. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Public Radio International.